We are given one life, full of billions of small and large decisions, to be somebody, to change, to be kind, to give hope, to become a better person, and to leave a lasting impact on this planet. It is a decision to be made every single day while your heart is still beating. We've made our decision. Absence of clothing. Atheist and science-based apparel and merchandise. Donating 50% of our profits to charity. Look good and feel good, without God. Check us out at absenceofclothing.com and find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest for discount codes and other sweet swag. Speaking of discount codes and sweet swag, why don't you head on over to absenceofclothing.com, type in the promo code EVILTWINS, and you will get 10% off. Not only will you get 10% off, but you're going to do something good for the world. Please give back, people. Hey, Brad. What's up? Remember last time when I asked you if you like beer? Yeah. And you tried the beer? Yeah. Did you still like it? I like that. That was summertime beer, my friend. Okay. It's time for the fall. You got something else for me? I, yeah, let me put it this way. I have another question. Okay. Do you like coffee? It's all right. Well, guess what, my friend? What? Old Town Brewing has fused coffee and beer into one beverage. You got to be kidding me. They call it Bean Me Up. You get it? Bean Me Up? Okay. Their coffee pale ale is brewed with Stumptown coffee to make it nice and zesty. So why don't you head over to otbrewing.com, check out their website. They've got pizza, they've got beer, they've got a lot of shit. Check them out. The information contained in this podcast is for entertainment use only. Please don't take a single word these two assholes say seriously. I'm Thad. I'm Brad. And we are the Evil Twin Podcast. What's the goal here? To continue making as much money as they can for as long as they can before they get busted. First of all, props to you for knowing about the Septuagint and the Vulgate. Yeah. So I'm beyond third grade? Wait. We're we're saying first year graduate school here. Like that was that was impressive. Yeah. Some of the most compelling theories of personal identity rooted essentially in your preferences, your likes, your dislikes, your experiences, your memories. That's that's essentially who you are, that's all you are. And then the most unexpected to me, but delightful, this emergence of ayahuasca. In understanding the self or in creating an image of the self, we also create an image of the other or the not-self simultaneously. So we, we create subject and object in the same moment. But really, this teaches us that we create our own environments, that we gravitate toward those things in our environments that please us based on who we are genetically speaking. You know, in yoga, people say namaste, the Sanskrit word for the divine in me honors the divine in you. It's the same concept. When enough of us live from our ruach, from our divine connection, we can't help but repair the world. Welcome to the Evil Twin Podcast. I don't even know if that's... Was that a different Is that one? how it goes? I don't think so. Let me try it. Lost in space! I don't even know if that was... I don't know if that's how it went. That sounds kind of like a... Isn't it funny how the... Saturday Night Live thing. Like the high-tech um, music from the 50s or 60s, how that yeah. sounded. The, the retro-futuristic. <laughs> yeah. 
But they music. were trying to be like, this is what high techs <laughs> looks like. But it was really just, if you listen to it, it was really just trumpets. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some, what are they called? The tinglys? Yeah, the tingly tinglys. Tinglys? <laughs> I don't know. Xylophones? <clears throat> yeah. I, I, I think about what the music was like back in the 50s and 60s. And then you have to, like, you know, for the purpose of this episode, I want to talk about the, the whole idea of artificial intelligence technology and shit like that. And so you have to just take into consideration what computers were like in the 50s. Yeah. Think about that shit, dude. It was well, a whole fucking building that very few people ever saw. A right. handful, really, of people saw the original computers. They were so fucking huge. And it took a team of people to, you know operate them and they were slow as fuck and then you go into the 60s and they're a little bit faster now they're like the size of a room a few more people start operating them they start using them for like banks and businesses and shit like that and mm -hmm. they, they're they're a little bit smaller um, because now they're a room instead of a building they're a lot faster it requires a little bit um, like less people to operate it and, and they were a little bit ahead of their um, where they were in the 50s mm -hmm. then you go into the 70s and those fucking things become something that can fit like on a desk mm -hmm. but they're pretty big still yeah right? um now one person can operate the thing they're way faster yeah. and now more and more people are starting to see them but still really relative to the whole population very few people saw those yeah 70s computers right and then you go into the fucking 80s now they're on a desk that's yeah. when we first saw them in our grade school schools started using mm -hmm. them Bit more businesses started using them. More and more people started seeing them. They became faster. They're smaller and more efficient, but they're still kind of clunky and boxy, right? Right. Then you go into the '90s when the laptop laptops came out, and everybody—not mm -hmm. everybody, but a lot more people—had personal computers at home, mm -hmm. de desktop computers, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then the iMacs, and the, you know, yeah. Apple the started blowing started up. happening and people could carry them with them now. Mm -hmm. Now they're faster than they were before. People could carry them with them. They become more portable and they become a little bit more personal, right? Mm -hmm. Then you go into the 2000s and that's when the birth of the iPhone. Yeah. And then the smartphone kind of revolution happens, right? In the first 10 years of the 2000s. And that's when like everybody had one. Yeah. Everybody had a computer now. And everybody could carry it in their fucking pocket. And it, 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 it took it, pictures. It and... took pictures and video and all these apps that you could now mm -hmm. use it for all these different purposes. It isn't just a phone. You can communicate through text. Now you can email on the goddamn thing. <laughs> Social media. Just It's starting to explode. It tracks your location. It knows yeah. where you are at all times. Right. And they're way faster. Yeah. And, by the way, way cheaper. Mm -hmm. than they used to be yeah it isn't that they've gotten more expensive they've actually gotten cheaper and billions times cheaper compared to the actual technology that's being used right mm -hmm. compared to the 1950s which all oh, right think about buying a computer in the 1950s how much yeah. that fucking thing would have well, cost. the only people that could afford them is like ibm the military and, and the government <laughs> much, yeah but now not everybody can afford a, a smartphone i'm not saying that because right. it's still not like everyone but we're getting closer to everyone mm -hmm. right so now I think the next thing that's happening is these wearable computers. Now it goes from you can carry it in your pocket. It went from building, room, desk. Then you could carry it. Mm -hmm. Then you could put it in your pocket. And now I think 
people are going to start being able to wear them. Yeah. And I think that's kind of going to be the next kind of frontier is this next step closer to personal computer means being able to actually wear it on your body. And then after that, you know, you hear people talking about these blood cell size microchips that can fucking, you know, float around inside your body, float around in your body and actually help with your, you know, DNA and shit like that. We're talking like, you know, next level shit that we're, we're getting ready to experience. And so, when you just think about it from that perspective, just the computer, how fast technology has grown. And it truly is exponential, man, when you really think about it. And mm-hmm. it is following that curve. And I remember back in 2009, um, I came across that movie called Transcendent Man mm-hmm. about Ray, Ray Kurzweil. And that fucking movie really, I mean, it wasn't the first time I had ever heard about artificial intelligence or anything like that, obviously, but it was really one of those movies that made me go, holy shit, we are really getting ready to cross over into a completely different world. Yeah, and, when I think about the, the like the music that we just heard, the 50s yeah. retro-sounding music, and, and considering everything that you just said, you know, the evolution of how far we've come, I mean, it's easy to assume, like... We're at the peak, we're right. at the mountaintop and right. looking down on everything, you know, but we're just fucking at the beginning still. Mm-hmm. And you listen to that music and it's it, to us, it's like cute and, you know, retro sounding. It's, it wasn't any closer to to reality than we are. I know. And, and, and I guess I'm speaking in terms of like the the usage of the computers and the computers that they had built at that time. Yeah. I mean, it they seem like stone age compared to what we are now. What yeah. we're doing now is stone age compared to what we're going to be doing in 10 years. Yeah. You know. I know. That's how fast it's moving too. So, I mean, we might as well just start injecting ourselves with fucking computers and just <laughs> <laughs> I heard it said recently where we the the theory is that we're like a uh basically like a fucking caterpillar. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing is wrapping ourselves in this cocoon of technology, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of that, we're going to be born again, something totally different. Probably this combination of, you know, biomaterial and synthetic material and this this different life form even. Like, yeah. it almost seems like we are here to to birth our intelligence, creativity, and ability is basically being used to birth this new thing. Yeah. Is what it feels like. Especially when you start looking at technology and the and all the fucking, you know, movement it's ha- it's been having. Yeah. Well you have to think about that. You know, we're gonna have to start swapping out parts for uh for uh non organic yeah. parts or, or partially organic parts or whatever, you know? It's that's the way it, it's gonna have to be if we wanna extend life in yeah. any way. Yeah. So yeah, we're already doing it, really. I mean, yeah. cochlear implant, artificial limbs, you know. Oh man, and they're growing. Artificial hearts. They're growing human body parts. That's now. the shit, though. That's when that's when it becomes really interesting. Is yeah. when we can grow um, not just biological matter, but combinations of biological yeah. and synthetic matter, and use mm-hmm. this kind of new and improved body parts. Yeah, and if we could, well, maybe we could trigger our DNA somehow to produce that type of material instead of yeah. I don't know. I wonder if that's the next level where instead of just doing it, instead of having a computer doing it, the computer just stimulates it to do do what it wants it to do. Well, our bodies become the computer. I mean, it's, it's, it would have to get to a point where, you know, the computer, you are the computer. Yeah. 
but then all the computers would have to be like linked like the World Wide Web for that like super <laughs> knowledge thing to happen. Well, it's funny because we're still using the word computer. Yeah, we're still using, you know, we're, we're using terms that are locked into our day and age. Yeah. But, you know, those terms are going to be irrelevant too. Yeah. it'll be like as if we were talking about a record or a fucking eight track tape or mm-hmm. something like that. So, yeah, well, we're just a couple fucking idiots. Right. And um, it, per usual. This seems to be our usual motif. <laughs> it's our theme. We're idiots. We're idiots that don't know anything, but we're interested in learning more. Mm-hmm. So um, I've kind of lined up this interview today uh, with this guy named John Markoff, and he's pretty fucking phenomenal. Here, let, let me give you a little bit of his background. So John Markoff uh, wrote for the, or still writes for the New York Times as a senior writer for the science section of the, of the paper. Cool. And he's been involved in um, technology since the 70s. And started writing originally in the 70s about it. The dude's written so many different books. Uh, most recently, his, his new book is called Machines of Loving Grace. And it's a look at the history of technology, robotics, and computing. And kind of tells the story about where it came from, where it's at, and potentially where it's going to go. And I'm super stoked to talk to this guy. Yeah, it should be an awesome conversation. So let's, let's get him on the line and, and go for it. Hello there, it is I, the Oracle. I'm pleased to announce the formation of a new spiritual community known only as Vast. The mission of Vast is simple. We want to make getting married easy, special, and amazing. Our easy online ordination process will have you officiating a wedding in no time. Do you have other options? Sure. Can you get ordained on other websites? Absolutely. But why would you wanna? Vast has everything you would want at the most affordable price. Free. The troops are gathering. The mechanism is in place. The bell will ring shortly. So head over to vast.church and get yourself ordained. So, hey, thanks for coming on our podcast. We really appreciate it. I got a chance to go through your book, the audio version, and it was awesome. Oh, thank you. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself, about your your life, kind of how you got interested in in the science. And just tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. (laughs) Well, let's see. I grew up in Silicon Valley. I actually grew up in Palo Alto. And specifically, uh, I grew up uh, directly adjacent to the home where Larry Page, who's the CEO of Google, lives today. I was actually the paper boy at the house where he lives now and where Steve Jobs lived once. (laughs) Wow. I like to say there goes the neighborhood. No kidding. But, uh, you know, when I was growing up, um, which was in the 1960s, in 1950s even, uh, you know, that was before Silicon Valley. And uh, uh, it was an engineering community near Stanford, you know, it was dominated by uh, electronics companies and, and NASA. Uh, but the Valley hadn't really become Silicon Valley yet. And uh, I went away for a decade uh, between sort of 65 and 75. And I came back and, you know, this incredible industry had was in the process of being created, which I actually sort of got involved in in terms of writing about personal computers and then later the internet. 
And I wrote an earlier book called What the Dormouse Said, um, um, how the 60s counterculture shaped uh, the personal computer industry, which was about stuff that happened right around Stanford between 1965 and 1975, which I sort of thought of as an anti-autobiography. It was basically what happened while I was gone. Wow. And, uh, you know, and that, that ultimately led to this book. It, it's not a sequel, but, um, you know, there were these two laboratories that I described in the first book on either side of Stanford in the, in the 19, early 1960s. And one of them was uh, founded by a man by the name of John McCarthy. And he was, of course, the person who coined the term artificial intelligence. And he created the Lisp programming language and he did some of the first work on time sharing. And then he moved to Stanford in 62 and he started the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory with funding from DARPA. And in his first proposal, he thought it would take a decade to build a thinking machine. That was that was the time price <laughs> back then. And on the other side of campus, there was uh, another laboratory called the Augmentation Research Center, started by a man by the by the name of Doug, Doug Engelbart. And he, of course, uh, was the inventor of the computer mouse. He invented hypertext, which became the World Wide Web. And he wanted to use uh, these same technologies to augment human intelligence. He wanted to build technologies for small groups of intellectual workers to make them more effective. And I realized uh, when I was thinking about this, this most recent book that those were sort of two different philosophies and they created two different communities of researchers within the computer science world. Uh, one group that wanted to replace humans and one wanted to extend them. And I realized that was a puzzle because of course, even if you augment humans, you potentially replace them. So it was a dichotomy and it was a paradox. Yeah. And that yeah. became the sort of puzzle that I I pursued in, in writing uh, Machines of Loving Grace. Yeah. So in, in the book, you talked about the difference between IA and AI. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So that was that that was that dichotomy that I was uh, talking about that I saw at those two laboratories. There were, uh, AI was, of course, artificial intelligence that was created by McCarthy. And IA is intelligence augmentation, uh, a, a term coined in the early 60s by Engelbart. And that today, that's become a field of research, which is to describe as humans and computer interaction, HCI. Um, and it, it basically focuses on the human as the center of the system. Uh, and you design for, you know, the, the sort of, I mean, it's exactly what Doug was saying. You design your system to make humans more powerful. Okay. Yeah. So my brother and I, just so you know, are coming from a background where we have like a real cursory kind of, knowledge about artificial oh. intelligence and our podcast isn't really about artificial intelligence. It's really more about belief. So ah, we'll be, okay. we'll be asking you some kind of philosophical questions and things like that as we go along. Sure. Um, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what do you think? Um, do you think reasoning as far as AI, do you think reasoning is one of the most difficult obstacles to overcome? Yeah. I mean, so, uh, if you look at the sort of the long path of artificial intelligence as a field, um, it, it's been this really interesting sort of uh, uh, for for decades the the field has over promised and under delivered. And only recently has has the field of AI been making what's perceived as rapid progress. And so, going all the way back into the 1950s, they thought that it would be a fairly easy, um, you know, in terms of the the number of years and even the the expense. It would be reasonably straightforward to build thinking machines. Mm. And, you know, to contrast that to today, and I guess sort of the best example of ground truth to your question 
Um, recently, DARPA held a contest called the, uh, the, the DARPA Robotics Challenge, and the finals were held in Los Angeles at the beginning of the summer. And they, there were 24 teams of the best roboticists in the world who had to build machines that could perform eight simple tasks. The idea was to build a machine that could go into a, a, a kind of emergency situation like Fukushima and perform tasks where humans couldn't. Uh, you know, if we'd been able to shut down Fukushima in the immediate uh, aftermath of the tsunami, there wouldn't have been the you know the meltdown of those those nuclear reactors. Yeah. And um, so they, it was it's a great idea. And so um, you know the, these teams, um, three of the teams were able to solve the sort of eight simple tasks that the robots had to perform. One of them was to drive. The other was to open a door. The other one was to close a valve. Had to walk across an uneven field of bricks and had to climb a ladder, a couple of other things. Mm -hmm. And the best, the best machines did it in about 45 minutes. But the most significant um, aspect is not the fact that they could do it or the fact that they were slow or the fact that most of them couldn't do it at all. But the fact was that they were teleoperated almost entirely. There was a little bit of autonomous behavior. So where we're making progress in terms of the sort of the big AI problem is in perception. So machines are starting to think, I'm sorry, they're starting to see and they're starting to listen uh, and to understand human language. They're not doing uh, cognitive tasks particularly well yet. And that's what your, your question was about yeah. listening. And so, you know, the reasoning stuff, um, I don't want to say never, but I also am sure it's not going to be tomorrow. So somewhere between tomorrow and never, we might <laughs> These things that the term of art is uh, strong AI or artificial general intelligence. That is a machine that can work and move in the world and, and think in the world just like you and I. Right. And, uh, you know, we're going to see more and more autonomy. Machines are going to make decisions. They're going to do things in the world. But getting to that point where they're actually capable of making decisions in an unstructured environment is still a huge challenge. So, so 2045 is probably not real, realistic. <laughs> well, I would bet against it, but, you know, there are a bunch of really bright people, you know, uh, people like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk and Bill Gates and Steve Wozniak, who are all saying this is something we should worry about. And I have to say I'm skeptical. But on the other hand, I agree that with them in raising the issue. I think it's an important issue because even though machines may not be self-aware, um, they will increasingly be autonomous. And that you can see that both, I mean, there's a spectrum of, of places where we will be seeing machine autonomy. Mm -hmm. um, Self-driving cars is a classic example where machines are going to have to make decisions. Mm -hmm. And the, the other, uh, you know, end of the spectrum, of course, is autonomous weapons where uh, machines will make killing decisions. And both of those are going to happen. Yeah. Didn't um, Elon Musk like donate something to what was it called? The future of life. He did. There's, it's, uh, yeah. There's, um, um, there are a couple of, um, well-known uh, physicists and computer scientists who have started this Institute to sort of think about the problems. Um, you know, they're posing, they're posing self-aware machines or sentient machines as a, a possibility, but it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a great thing to do. Um, they're not the only one um, to do this. Eric Horvitz, who's the um, uh, a director of research at Microsoft, has also set up a similar organization to think about the consequences of machine intelligence at Stanford. So this is going on, and uh, it's a good time for it to happen because we're delegating 
you know, we're delegating human-like qualities to machines, and that potentially separates sort of the ethical consequences of those decision-making processes from humans. And I think that's something that we need to think very, you know, clearly about as a society. For sure. Um, you mentioned that the, uh, the area of perception um, is one of the areas that we're making a lot of progress in. And it reminded me of a, a, a article that I read a little while ago about a robot named Freddy in the 60s and 70s. What do you know about that? Oh, I, I'm sorry. I, I haven't done my homework. Tell okay. me about Freddy. It was a robot that was built and it just used perception and it could it – could, I guess it had some cameras or something attached to it and it could sort of sift through a bunch of parts and reassemble – objects that had been huh. taken apart i'll have to go look at it. i mean okay. so the early you know there there have been many many different kinds of robots shaky was one of the first that was a, a was sort of an ambitious effort like that uh that, that was in the 1960s at sri and it was pentagon funded hmm. and uh, more recently you know there, there's been this interesting discussion that's taking place within the computer science community about how you measure machine intelligence. For a long time, we had this notion of this thing called the Turing test that was proposed in 1950 by Alan, the mathematician Alan Turing. And, and that was, you know, if, if we're sitting at terminals like we are now and we're typing and we're not speaking, um, uh, you know, and I can ask you a series of questions um, for, a, for a reasonable period of time and I can't tell whether you're a computer or, or a machine. That's thought to be... Uh, an example of machine intelligence. And people have become more and more skeptical about that. That's actually probably a better measure of human gullibility than it is of machine <laughs> intelligence. Can you fool, fool the humans? And as I covered the very first um, Turing test as a, that was done as a contest hmm. uh, in 1991 for the New York Times. And uh, they had two groups of judges. One was a group of computer scientists and the other was a group of people they pulled off the street and as long ago as 1991, if you were taking sort of the lay person on the street, you could pass the Turing test. So now there are a bunch of proposed uh, uh, alternatives. And the reason I thought about this is, you know, your idea about a robot that could assemble something from parts. One of them is called the IKEA challenge. And you can probably guess what that is. You give somebody a bag of parts, like to build a piece of furniture, not somebody, you give a machine that, and if the machine can do that, uh, they pass this intelligence test. Huh. There are other uh, researchers are giving, um, are giving computers, programs, SAT tests. That's a standardized tests of various kinds because, you know, the, the, what people come to realize is you can't measure machine intelligence in one way just the way you can't measure human intelligence in a single way. So you might need a battery of tests to, yeah. to sort of come up with a benchmark. So I guess um, ex machina is not going to be reality anytime soon. Well, okay. So I mean, it's very funny because I'm just, I was horrified. I think that ex machina scored like 93 on the tomato meter. Yeah, yeah. And I went to see Chappie too. And Chappie was at nine. And and I actually like Chappie better, but you know, ex machina, you know, fembots with pleasure, pleasure, pleasure centers. What's not to like? You can kind of predict what's going to happen. But I thought it was pretty, I mean, you know, it turned into a horror story at the end. It was largely predictable in a lot of ways. And I was kind of disappointed because the the, the world that's presented by um, movies like uh, Terminator and Ex Machina is, is in time. I mean, here we have one guy who, you know, did this fantastic number of breakthroughs, including, I don't know what the brain was, but it was some bioorganic computing thing um, that one guy came up with. And I, you know, I just... Uh, 
<laughs> Willing suspension of disbelief is hard. On the other hand, um, movies like her, uh, I don't know if you, if you yeah. saw that. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I thought her was great because I, I've seen that kind of human machine interaction happening right now. And you don't have to sort of dial things out that far to see that real human interaction with machines in terms of conversational systems is happening today. Yeah. And there, there and there will be consequences. Uh, you know, I mean, Sherry Turkel just came out with this interesting book called Reclaiming Conversation, where she's very worried about a world in which we all talk to machines and there's no face-to-face conversation left. Too late. <laughs> <laughs> it's too late. Yeah. Look at us. <laughs> it does seem like if there ever is a, a true, like, what did you call uh uh strong AI uh, artificial general intelligence. AG. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, it does seem like that's going to be more in the realm of some sort of like complex interconnected system rather than like a single robot. Don't you think? Well, that's, that's possible. I mean, let's, let's just forget, let's, let's forget the embodied notion and just say, could, you know, how much computing power would it take to do that? And, you know, people like Ray Kurzweil and others come up with these estimates about how much computing goes on, on in the brain. And then they make this simple conversion and say, and, you know, draw the arrow out and they say, oh, we're already almost doing that much computing. So it won't take very long. And I just think that's um, naive on a kind of cosmic scale because I, you know, from my conversations with neuroscientists, most of them, um, you know, we'll tell you that we don't completely understand either the complexity of the brain or the actual uh, mechanisms that are involved in cognition. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist. Uh, I'm a, you know, I, I write about uh, information technology, but the, the, this notion of transferring these things mechanistically to a biological system that we have no clue how it works yet seems to be a, a, a bit arrogant to me, I guess. I guess somebody's got to have goals, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, yeah. And the, the AI community has long had goals. And I actually think, I mean, I have to, you know, my, my sort of glib way of talking about this is I, I can't tell you, you know, the, the visionaries in Silicon Valley are almost always wrong. And that's what's so great to be a reporter here. I mean, you okay. just have to write down what they're saying and remember it when, when they, you know, they... They they make these grand claims that and you know things have happened. I I agree, but um, you know the let's take self driving cars. How quickly will uh, we be at the point where I can use my smartphone to summon a car here in San Francisco and have it take me to dinner in Palo Alto? Ah, can't wait. <laughs> well, okay, it's a, it's a really interesting point. First of all, I'm betting. So, so I'm, what I tell people is if, if in 2025, a decade from now, somebody comes and gets me with a car and takes me to dinner, I'm paying. Okay. <laughs> um, so I, I put my money down on that because I think it's a really hard problem. I think there will be um, lots of automated transportation in a limited scope. If you, if you just like say just the downtown area um, or just a campus or something like that, you know, I think that's doable. But the, you know, getting on and off the freeway and rush hour traffic and all of the edge cases. I mean, Google's done an amazing job. Uh, They've got, uh, you know, 1.2 million miles in without a computer caused accident. Hmm. But even the Google guys will tell you that, um, you know, they started this other project because they don't know how to solve the handoff problem. Uh, Well, the handoff problem is great. So, so. Google was running this program and, 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 you know, they began it with these uh, professional drivers who sat in the cars and oversaw the operation of the machine. 
and they were attentive and they had checklists and all that. And at a certain point in the spring, or maybe at the beginning of this year, they turned it over to Google employees and they gave them the cars to commute. And they instrumented the cars and watched the employees. And what they found is lots and lots of distracted behavior up to and including falling asleep. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, if you're if you're asleep or you're engaged in playing uh, World of Warcraft, you have like an eighth of a second to come back and get what's called situational awareness. You know, you have to understand what's you know, you don't have to just wake up. You have to know what's going on so you can you can take over when the computer says, "I give up. This is a problem I can't handle." Mm. And you know, that's not a problem that they figured out how to solve. And I, I believe it's an unsolvable problem. So either you have to take over entirely and have the computer be powerful enough that it can solve all the problems, including liability, which is a huge challenge that nobody's come up against. Yeah. So I think it's going to take longer than, than people think that, you know, there'll be lots of automation in cars. And I think it's very interesting that a couple of weeks ago, Toyota you know, I think until recently, the second largest uh, uh, car manufacturer in the world, maybe soon to be the first because of Volkswagen's woes. Yeah, no kidding. Um, uh, Toyota uh, gave $25 million each to the uh, the AI labs at MIT and Stanford to work not on self-driving cars, but to work on intelligent cars. And that's exactly on, on one side of, you know, my side of the AI versus IA. They want to have a guardian angel looking over your shoulder while you drive, um, that will step in if you screw up. You're still responsible. You're still in the driver's seat. And that's a different model. Hmm. Yeah, that makes more sense, too. More practical. And at least it's one step closer to <laughs> having the full uh, full yeah. driverless experience. But, you know, there's a, big, there's a bigger question here. It's so interesting that we as Americans have, you know, okay, we want to automate transportation. And we've looked at it almost entirely in a privatized way. You know, how am I going to get my car or how am I going to have a car come to pick me up? And, you know, I think that that transportation to and from places is a wonderful place where you can think about, you know, I don't want to use the word socialize, but you can, you know, they're called trains. They work really well. They'd be really easy to automate. You can move a lot of people very efficiently. And so I don't think we've thought deeply enough about what you know, what's best for a whole, you know, urban area. I mean, it, where I live in San Francisco, we missed this incredible opportunity in the 1960s to run BART down the peninsula and connect, directly connect these two world-class universities. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge lost opportunity. And now it's, you know, it's more expensive than we'll ever be able to do it. And it's, it's really, uh, you know, people, we still have cars on the brain rather than transportation. Right. So um, just, Kind of going back to this whole idea of 2045 and these conferences they have, mm -hmm. um, I've heard that it's almost like a religious kind of a thing. There's almost there almost is some sort of um, kind of spiritual like aspect to, to it. it. Yeah, yeah. And they would really uh, differ with that, although I certainly agree with you. Um, so there's there's two types of things here. There's transhumanism, which I don't know a huge amount about, but it sort of argues that we're in this evolutionary process and we're sort of evolving into this, you know, Borg-like, perhaps Borg-like machine um, world of the future. And then there's uh, also this idea of the singularity, which I know a lot more about. And the, the singularity I call the unofficial religion of Silicon Valley. <laughs> and, and, you know, it comes from an actually, it's an, an idea that was first uh, mentioned by John von Neumann, the physicist and mathematician in the 1950s. And then it was popularized more recently 
by a computer scientist and science fiction writer, Werner Vinge. And Vinge looked at the rate and increase in computer power and basically extrapolated. And I believe he initially said, I'm a little unclear on this, that machines would surpass human intelligence in either 2023 or 2027. And a lot of people have sort of taken this idea, looking at the increase in computer power, and and sort of just you know done the math and you know, make certain assumptions about how much computing it needs to be you know biological human and, and you just you know draw out the curves and you know it has a kind of of religious quality to it because yeah because it's almost like a savior or, or some sort of aspect yeah. you know yeah you know there's a, let's see what's the name there's a really there's a great book written on this subject. Um, I'm blanking on his name, but it's called, uh, it's by a professor of religion and it's called Apocalyptic AI. Hmm. And he deals with all these scenarios of rapid increase in intelligence. And, you know, uh, Kurzweil is probably a great example of this. And Hans Moravik, is, uh, who's an early pioneering roboticist, has written a, a couple of books, one including one called Mind Children, about this subject where they just sort of look at how uh, we've... Um, you know, progressed in terms of computing power, and then they've made assumptions about where we're going. And they've been consistently wrong. And I just had a piece um, two Sundays ago about the, the what I call the graying of Moore's Law. Moore's, Moore's Law, of course, is this phenomenon in which the density of transistors in a silicon chip has doubled at two-year intervals for a long, long time. And people sort of extrapolated out. But we're about to hit a wall. Uh, in fact, we have hit the wall, and many of the sort of attributes of Moore's Law have already stopped, but most particularly increasing clock speed, which stopped a decade ago. And people just sort of wave their hands and sort of ignore that, but that's the reality. And I, could, I mean, I could go on this for a long time, but Moore's Law is not what it once was. And, you know, it never was a law of physics. It was, it was basically more about the economic system that was put in place to build semiconductors. And it was the signaling mechanism to keep everybody in lockstep in this in this big, huge, long supply chain. And it worked magnificently for a long time. But we're reaching the molecular level. And, um, you know, if you're Kurzweil, you say, oh, okay, yes, you're right. It's an S-curve. Um, and we'll just have linked S-curves. There'll be another technology that'll come on. And maybe it'll be um, spintronics or maybe it'll be molecular computing or maybe it'll be quantum computing. And, you know, maybe that's right. <laughs> I report on things when they're in Fry's or in Best Buy. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> That's when they're real. Have you met Ray Kurzweil? Yeah, yeah, I know Ray. What's and, he like in person? Um, he's very smart. He's he's very, um, uh, you know, he's charismatic. He 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 really. Um, I think I just saw he gave a speech recently, and you know, he 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 believes he's he's going to reach immortality. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know if he really believes that, but he sort of pushes that notion that he can make this jump by extending his life far enough that we'll be able to sort of capture a uh, biological state and keep him alive so he can be uploaded to the cloud, which I think is kind of a wacky idea. That, that gets into the apocalyptic AI idea. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, he's, 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 he's working at Google and they've got him um, in that group that was at one point called the Google Brain Project. I don't think it is anymore. Um, they realized that there were some overtones that, that they might have to yeah. you know, back away from. I didn't realize that Google's main goal was pretty much to kind of create an artificial intelligence. Is that true? Well, I think that's one of their, you know, they call them moonshots. Yeah. Uh, 
they have had for a long time. I mean, that was a project originally started by Sebastian Thrun, who was also the guy who started the um, the driverless car project. And uh, you know, he let's let's not call it a brain. Let's call it a thinking machine. They want to build a very powerful AI system. Uh, and, and you know, I don't know toward what end. I mean, what's the? It's not clear sort of why they're pursuing that goal, but uh, they've got it. And I, I'm actually two or three years out of date. They're very. They're not very public about sort of where the project is or what they're doing. Um, I reported a couple of years ago, ago uh, when they were able to um, basically look at a lot of photos on the Internet and see cats. I don't know if you remember that, but that was no. they taught a machine to recognize cats. Oh, okay. Considered something of a breakthrough. It was one of those things that, I mean, we're getting closer on object recognition. I mean, that, that you know, m- machines are starting to understand objects. What's more difficult is understanding the nature of a scene. I mean, you want to be able to look at a picture and say, you know, that woman is carrying a purse and she's about to set it down on the bench. And the machines are not close to that yet. Mm. You're depressing me. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I was banking on that driverless car. (laughs) Hey, let's get a little woo-woo here. Okay. Um, Do you think AI will ever have like its own consciousness? So, you know, that's the great thing about being a reporter. I try to limit myself to five years out, um, but I've read all the science fiction. I mean, I'm, you know, I grew up on science fiction and uh, I love that stuff. Uh, So, uh, and I've seen how, you know, how science fiction has had a huge impact on the design of the systems that we do have. For example, I can't tell you how many of the guys that I interviewed um, saw Space Odyssey, which of course has HAL in it. Yeah. And decided they wanted to go into AI because they wanted to build those brains. Mm-hmm. And so um, I guess I'm I'm more of a prove it to me kind of guy. I mean, show me that we're close. Yeah. Uh, you know, show me more than you know robots falling down in the DARPA robotic challenge. And yeah. I, at the same time, um, I also believe because you know my my interest in this is in sort of the social science aspect. I believe that. You know, from the point of view of us, it sort of doesn't matter. We're, we're so easy to fool. I mean, we will anthropomorphize anything. We'll have a conversation with our cars, our computers. I mean, you know, the bar is lower than you think to giving the appearance of intelligence. Let's forget the actual nature of intelligence. I, I don't know if you saw this story I, I wrote, I think it was about three or four weeks ago, about a Microsoft experiment that's going on in China right now. And they've created a chatbot called Zhao Ice. It, it stands for Little Bing. And it's, it's got 20 million registered users. 10 million of them are intense users, meaning they have multiple interactions with it today. And its purpose is different than, um, than Siri or Cortana, the, the uh, Apple and Microsoft chatbots um, or, uh, uh, you know, assistants. Um, it would, they're, they're intended to just, you ask them something or tell them something and they just go and do it and you go on with your day-to-day work. Um, no, uh, Zhao Ice is a conversationalist and they call it toilet time. The kids will go into their bathrooms at 11 p.m. and have long conversations with this thing. Uh, 25% have typed I love you to it. Interesting. Wow. And has it typed it back? <laughs> well, I, you know, I didn't ask that question. What does it say? When, <laughs> well, if they're sitting on the toilet and they're saying, I love you, I'm wondering what else they're doing, but that's a whole nother. Yeah, that's, a, that's right. <laughs> well, uh, I, you know, when I came into this world, uh, you know, I, I, I was reporting on personal computers in the early 1980s and there was a text adventure 
game company called Infocom in Boston. And their slogan was, the best graphics are in your head. And, you know, that was true until about, I don't know what, uh, PlayStation 3. And then I began to see things that I could never imagine. <laughs> the best graphics were no longer in my head. It's true. And, and they're getting better, too. The, the, new, the new PlayStation and Xbox are insane. Have you guys tried virtual reality yet? Um, I've had a... a... So I guess you could call it virtuality. It's more of like a 360 demo of sort of, you know, with the headset on, sitting on a chair, kind of swiveling around, looking around. I saw a uh, a demo that was a, like a Hollywood thing. It had a couple actresses in it. Um, it was we have a, a company here called 360 Labs that came into my work and kind of did this demo. Uh, but that was the most I've I haven't really interacted with it that much. So you know, I read Vinge's a recent book of Vinge's uh, called Rainbow's End, which is about augmented reality. And I, I just loved it. But I, I was really skeptical until I went to Florida and I visit, visited Magic Leap, which mm -hmm. is the company that has a half a billion dollars in funding from Google and others. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it kind of made me a believer in the sense that I now think that um, if they can miniaturize the technology and a couple of other ifs, that it might actually be real. And, it was on the level of, you know, we could be sitting in a room and there could be a four-armed four creature walking on the desk that would look absolutely lifelike and it would be believable. And I now think that that's actually possible. Hmm. Well, that, that goes kind of back to the idea that people who uh, had some experience with psychedelics <laughs> kind of helped create this whole thing. <laughs> well, it, well, yeah, clearly, that you know, the line between reality and whatever kind of computer-generated world we're going to have cyberspace is going to begin to blur. I mean, it's already begun to blur. Right. And yeah. so augmented reality might be uh, the complete step in that direction at some point. But, you know, my friend Paul Sappho likes to say, never mistake a clear view for a short distance. And I have to remind people of that all the time. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that when, when you start talking about AI, especially people like, you know, me, for example, <laughs> that um, have these kind of ideas about it just from things that we've heard. Mm -hmm. Movies. Um, movies, yeah. Other podcasts Pop that culture. you listen to. <laughs> so here's a good benchmark. I mean, uh, I, the, the, the challenge I propose to these roboticists is when will we be able to take an aging human and safely give them a shower with a robot caregiver? Mm. Uh, and, you know... My guess is it may not happen in my lifetime, right. <laughs> depending on how long it is. But but um, that's that is like that's ground truth for the kinds of dexterity and um, cognition and kind of sort of hard problem, um, which is now done by you know a minimum wage human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The applications. I mean, you could imagine all of the different applications for you know it's not even a simple task, but tasks like that that are needed that humans don't necessarily need to fulfill if we have the right technology. It, this is referred to as either Moravex or uh, Polyani's paradox. Mm -hmm. And this is the challenge. Mor Hans Moravex said it this way, the things that are uh, easiest for computers are hardest for humans and vice versa. And so think of the problem of sticking your hand in your pocket and separating out the coins and getting the dime. Mm -hmm. And you could essentially do that without thinking. And no computer can come anywhere close to that now. Do you think that if uh, artificial intelligence was actually conscious, if we got to that point, this is another woo-woo question, um, do you think that they could hold sort of unjustifiable beliefs like religious beliefs? 
So, um, you know, this this was really uh, struck me what was most compelling about her in this weird way. Um, so what would the belief systems of these machines be? And, mm-hmm. you know, the question, the question then becomes, are they programmed or do they evolve? And if they evolve, you know, I guess that's their belief system would be based on their experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's, you know, it could be anything, right? Cause their experience would be far different than humans, but you know, and so, uh, Marvin Min- Minsky famously said, um, if we're lucky, they'll keep us as pets. Uh, he said that in the 1960s. Um, and more recently, uh, you know, so there's all this fear about the fact that these machines might decide that we're their mortal enemies. And, uh, and this, you know, this goes back to the Forbin project or something like that. Um, uh, but I actually thought her was a much more sort of compelling endgame of what might happen if there was a machine intelligence that really did, uh, you know, uh, go through the singularity is that we would be incredibly boring to them and they would go off and do things that were much more interesting that we can't even conceive of. Doesn't that sound more yeah, positive? It does. seems like they'd be in outer space exploring or doing something that we well, can't do, you know? Yeah, that's what Moravik thought. That, um, you know, he thought that these intelligences, I mean, this is a little bit of Blade Runner. I mean, I, I hate to keep coming back to to um, science fiction, but Blade Runner posits, you know, these these creatures, these android creatures that live off planet. Um, and, you know, they, they come back only because they, you know, they put a kill switch in them. But, but he posits this, this civilization, this intelligent machine civilization, which will expand outward into the universe because they're not limited the way the humans are to uh, inside the biosphere. Yeah. Well, I mean, can you break down the, like a, a few different like examples of kind of, theories that people have of like what direction this is going to take well let's see i mean so there's i mean you can break it down into dark and light i mean um there there's lots and lots of dark scenarios uh of um of you know uh there there are even people who say you know if these machines become intelligent how would we know why would they tell us you know, you, you talked a little bit about uh, how much computing power and whether that computing power for an intelligent system would be um, would be distributed. And at the very beginning of the computer, or I guess the interactive computer, there was this great Ray Bradbury short story. I don't know if you remember it. Dial F for Frankenstein. Uh, yeah, it sounds familiar. And it was, I mean, because basically he based, he basically argued that, in, you know, machine intelligence grew out of the number of interconnections. And he was talking about the telephone network back then. But he sort of said, look at this, this, this sentient thing comes awake on global scale. And the only problem is it's only two years old. <laughs> and so it's doing random things with all of the machines it controls. And so it like kind of... a two-year-old would do. Yeah, right? yeah it, it, you know, waves around a little bit and jets are taking off. And um, so that's one scenario. And I, th- I think a lot about that. I just think that that we vastly underestimate uh, the amount of complexity that's needed to create these ecologies that will, that will sort of evolve on their own in interesting ways um, that, you know, the, the level of interconnected computing on the face of the earth may not be adequate for doing that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, at least it would seem to, because nothing's happening. Um, right. Right. Nothing interesting. Uh, you know, some things behave unpredictably, uh, but that's about as close as we're getting. Um, and 
you know, then you get into these much more tightly bound scenarios of, uh, you know, once again, the science fiction guys, uh, uh, you know, I love Gibson's, Gibson used the term Microsoft with a small, lowercase m, where, you know, if you wanted to learn some new kind of intelligence, you just snapped in some sort of device into your cortex and then you, know, you could immediately speak a new language and stuff like that. Very uh, Matrix-esque. Yeah. yeah, very Matrix-esque. I would love that. <laughs> it's just, it seems like just such a lazy approach. That's too. okay with you me. you got to earn it sometimes in life, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, you know, if you want to earn it, I have a suggestion. There's this, there's this course. You know, there are these kinds of online courses called MOOCs, Massively Online Open Courses. And um, one of them, the second largest one, it's Coursera. It's being taught by a really well-known neuroscientist whose name is Terry Zhiznowski. And what he's done is he's taken all the ideas of the all the understanding from modern neuroscience, and he's basically teaching a course on how you can learn to learn. And I've been meaning to take it for some a couple of weeks now. I'm too lazy, wow. but that seems like a neat idea to me. Yeah, definitely. It sort of reminds me of like the trivia method or one of those old ways. Yeah. So can you um, just kind of. I guess in closing here, can you kind of break down your book a little bit for us um, so the listeners can yeah. kind of know? So um, it, it, um, it's, it's uh, Machines of Love and Grace, the quest for common ground between humans and robots. And I start with this question of, uh, you know, we, we, as these machines become more powerful, we increasingly, as humans, have the, you know, the ability to decide whether to replace humans or to augment them. And I realized early on that that is the decision that will be made by the designers of these systems. And so I, I profile a, a number of them who made the decision to, you know, to some cases to go from AI to IA. Some people walked away from the, the, the AI field. And the classic, I mean, so they're probably, the book is composed of a bunch of, of profiles and narratives about the lives of the people who designed these systems, both designing us in and designing us out. People like the designers of Siri, or Andy Rubin, who was the person who built the Google robot division, and, and just trying to get a picture of, of the kinds of decisions they make. Yeah, I thought it was a great book. It was, it was so informational that it was actually hard for me to kind of <laughs> sink into. Sink well, into, that makes yeah. a more difficult audio book, actually, from my experience. That's true. Yeah, it would have been great if I had one story. That's what... <laughs> yeah, you had like 40, I think. I had too many stories. It's my, it's, I, I, I plead guilty. I, you know, <laughs> no, it was a great book, though. Thank you very much. So, yeah, how can how can other people uh, find you? How can they? Well, so if anybody that's... wants to keep up with what I'm reporting on, I'm in the science section of the Times. I like to joke that my blog is www.nytimes.com, <laughs> and, and I, 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 you know, I'm I'm there pretty frequently, and I'm still writing about robotics and AI. That's probably the best way to, okay. to keep up with me. And I on Twitter, I'm just Markoff. Great. Cool. That's awesome. Hey, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. We'll have to have you back on to talk about some other stuff. It's yeah. It, it, when, it's fun talking to you guys. I'd be glad to. Okay. Thank Thanks you, a lot. Take care. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Evil Twin Podcast. To get the full Evil Twin experience, go to eviltwinpodcast.com and follow the guys on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Evil Twin Podcast. If you really want to show your support, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcasts on iTunes. And remember, surf ever you minute. Well, surf that minute. Surf no limos, right?